Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Welcome to All The Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Kristen Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. All right. Well, we finished the book. We did. We're still alive. We're still friends. <laughs> We're still friends. Yes. Yes. Yes, we are. Yes. You know, if we can get through 2018 and 2019 with those hellish shenanigans, we can All the get fights about critical race theory. Yeah. All the fights about critical race theory and whiteness and... You calling me a racist every other day? There's that. Like, <laughs> we can get through anything. Yeah. A book will not get us off our game. Although, the book did pr- produce its fair number of fights. Like, we had a fight the other day about, uh, like, a chapter in the book. And... But actually, we, like, good things came of that. G- great things came out of it. And we were able to turn that into, like, more information to put into the book. One of the things that I thought about after our not so mild disagreement you know the girl who lives under me was like i think i heard you guys fight did you guys fight i just (laughs) prayed (laughs) since you guys sounded so intense i was like yeah we were um but i thank her for her prayers um is that you know every hard conversation contrary to what is going around you know on social media and in some churches and everywhere you know you can have a hard conversation with someone who doesn't bear your same skin color and still be friends you can have a hard conversation with someone who doesn't bear your same skin color and still be united still love each other know that a hard conversation was a hard conversation and that's literally all that it was you know, and in that. the end, it had good fruit. It did. It we were able fruit. to improve the chapter, and I think good things happened. Yeah, so. we both learned something about each other, and yeah. you know, I think that's that's it. But that's a journey, and that's a walk all by itself. Like, how am I learning something? Am I listening? Not all the time do I like to listen. Sometimes I just like to be heard and be right. <laughs> Don't we all? Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> I will affirm that. <laughs> See, we about to have a fight right now. Let me shut my mouth. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. <laughs> oh no! So the book is the book is off to the publisher, and we're gonna. I think now we have to live through the legal edits. Legal edits. The legal people yeah. read the book. Yeah, there's that. Hopefully, we survive. Oh, we will. You guys, <laughs> last week on our show, we mentioned that we wanted to have a conversation on affirmative action. The entire SCOTUS ruling um, happened last week. What does that mean for? America? What does it mean for Harvard? What does it mean for, you know, black people? We, we, there's a lot of questions. Um, and if you're in, I don't know if your feeds are like mine, but my feed is completely filled with just all of this black rage. Like uh, that, like that's like you're I, never, you're never going to make yeah, progress. I'm now. never going to have progress. I'm always going to be held. This is just another example of the disparity. Yeah. So the system's yeah. against you. And yeah, I, I, this is the right against me. The devil is a whole lie. There's just so much, you know, also just a lot of snippets out there. You don't That's get the whole yeah. context. You get headlines or social media feeds. So we started putting out some requests to people that we yeah. know, like who can come on? Who My can cousin ha- Neil came through. Uh, yeah. Neil Shenvey came through. Um recommended somebody i'm looking forward to the conversation yeah yeah. so 
Um, let us bring on Brother Han, Han Cho. Han Cho. Hi. Hi. Now, I was going to introduce you, but you're already here. So will you please introduce yourself to our audience and let us know who you are? Well, my name is Han Cho, and I am a Christian attorney and uh, generally speaking, a corporate lawyer, although I started my career in litigation. And I have a wonderful wife, Heather, and we've been married for 11 plus years now, and we have four children. Uh, we have my almost eight-year-old daughter, Abby, my almost six-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, my almost four-year-old son, Joshua, and my almost two-year-old son, Caleb. And we're looking forward to celebrating birthday season coming up uh, August, September, October. That's awesome. The next age. So. Yes. That's, well, uh, you're busy. Yeah, busy. Uh, uh, dad with young kids. Yeah. I, you know, I work a full-time job, a secular job, uh, but my wife has the far more busy, far more important job of being a full-time homemaker. And uh, yeah, it just, it blows me away, everything she does and how incredibly excellently she raises our children. And uh, uh, certainly I also strive awesome. to do that as well. Well, that's wonderful. And um, you said you're a Christian attorney. So we read a little article that you, that our friend Neil it was far from little uh, reposted over at Shenvi Apologetics. So we want to let people know um, there's if they want to catch that article, we'll put it in the show notes for everyone. Um, where you, I think this article was maybe from a, from a couple of years ago, Five years ago, where yeah. you kind of gave a lot of the background on the case as you had been following it. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what caused you to become interested in this case that mm -hmm. eventually made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, I first read an article about this case in sometime in June of 2018. I think it was actually from the New York Times. And when I read that article, it just struck me because it seemed so plainly, even outrageously unfair. Now, I'd always had an interest in affirmative action generally. Yeah, I was a big supporter of it for a long time, actually, before uh, I became a Christian. And the more I studied the Bible after being saved, the less comfortable I became with affirmative action. But, you know, be that as it may, uh, after I read that article, I started digging into the case documents and it just continued to blow me away how clearly rotten the Harvard admissions process was and how it so obviously discriminated against Asian applicants, in my view, anyway. And so from there, I started reading everything I could about the case just due to personal interest. And I even made contact with and struck up an acquaintanceship with this incredible secular author named Wesley Yang, who had written very powerful about this topic. And, uh, you know, after a while, uh, you know, taking all of that information in, I really felt this burden to write something about, to, to write something about that case from a biblical Christian perspective. And I titled that article, Affirmative Action or Unbiblical Partiality. And I think that's the article you read when Neil republished it on his website. Yeah. Now, most of us, as I mentioned earlier, are familiar with the case. Where I think most people are just familiar with the fact that affirmative action has been taken back. Can you kind of offer some bigger information or more detailed information? Like what was this case about? What made the plaintiffs even go down this road? What, what are, can you fill in the, the shadow pieces where, yeah the, background. You know, yeah, the background, I think that's a better word for yeah, it. Yeah, backstory. 
Yeah. So essentially, this case was organized by a guy named Edward Blum. And uh, he is a conservative legal activist from a Jewish background, actually. And I understand that his activism was uh, apparently informed by his experiences with both anti-Semitism and also he ran for Congress when, when there was a Democratic nominee that was unopposed. He ran for Congress in a heavily gerrymandered district. And uh, it, it, that also struck him very powerfully as unfair. And he has been involved in, a, in several Supreme Court cases over the course of his lifetime, one including that issue of gerrymandering and a number of them he has actually won. Uh, so, so what's gerrymandering? That might I think I know what it is, but that might be a new word for some people. Sure. Gerrymandering is when they're drawing the congressional districts and some of them are in this really weird, you know, shape. Uh, it's kind of like a gerrymander, uh, like a salamander, I think, was originally uh, what it was concerned about. And it's possible. I don't recall exactly the etymology of the word, but it might have involved a person named Jerry. But it was just this really crazy you know, uh, you know, serpentine-like districts. And the purpose of the district was not to reflect geographical reality. It was to try to engineer a certain result in the vote and uh, based on the demographics and population of the people in that uh, district or in that heavily contorted district. So that's what gerrymandering is. And there, there are elements, I mean, it, it basically continues to this day, and there are large parts of it that are allowed and, and considered lawful, except for some of the more extreme versions. So did you know about gerrymandering? Yeah. It's, it's it, uh, something we learned in sociology. It sounds like some kind of weird scheme to secure congressional seats or something. <laughs> well, so that, and, you know, that's why there are very few actually competitive congressional elections uh, in every two years. Uh, very few of them are actually competitive. And uh, that's one of the reasons is the design of your voting district in this fashion. So, so this Jewish attorney has kind of um, an interest in taking on or looking for cases that somehow demonstrate uh, ethnic partiality. Is, is that the connection between his advocacy against gerrymandering and this case? Yeah, I mean, again, he has pursued a number of cases along that line, you know, relating to ethnic partiality or uh, just fairness in, in, in the way that he is perceiving them. It's, and it's interesting because this man, Edward Blum, he and his supposed motives have been pretty savagely demonized by a lot of the left. Uh, I honestly don't know a ton about him, but I will say that in America, citizens are allowed to pursue justice in court. And their own personal beliefs and even ideology may indeed inform their actions. So the reality here is that Edward Blum and his organization and its Asian members, also known as Students for Fair Admissions, they properly brought a lawsuit. They persevered through losses at two district courts and one circuit court. And eventually they did prevail at the Supreme Court. So tell us a little bit about you know, what the case was yeah. and, and you know, what prompted the case and where they felt like the injustice was happening. Yeah, what was, no. what was Blum seeing? Yeah, well, what may have prompted them and why they thought discrimination was in play even in these admissions processes, really, uh, I'll tell you from personal experience, I know that it has been conventional wisdom in the Asian community since even I applied for college in the late 80s that being Asian was not a benefit to your chances of being accepted to any university. And that view certainly hardened in the 90s and throughout the 21st century. 
And the anecdotal and actual data appeared to bear those concerns out. And so when they sued, uh, you know, that, that, that was, I believe, what motivated the case, this notion that Asians were not getting a fair deal. And then uh, when they sued during the discovery process, in particular with Harvard, they obtained a ton of confirming information to that effect, including even the fact that Harvard had commissioned their own internal investigation in 2013, which showed that Asians were being unfairly treated, and yet they just ignored and buried the report, which is just utterly uh, offensive to biblical justice. So Han, help us understand, because I think probably the majority of listeners um, may, may say, well, what we generally hear is like the stereotypical Asian or like the smart Asian and things like that, which definitely don't fall, you know, for every Asian person. But why would it, why would, you know, university admissions be seen as something that works against um, Asian students in particular? Because you mentioned like, you know, that there was something if I get the gist of it, that there was something that would be working against Asian students, that it wasn't in your favor, but what would that be and why would it be that? So the interesting dynamic here is that Asians, in terms of a, a percentage of the population uh, in America, maybe six or seven percent, um, but in terms of a lot of college uh, classes, they may be at Harvard, for example, around 20 percent. So Asians are overrepresented relative to their proportion of the population but they're actually underrepresented when considering the percentage of applicants. And also arguably, uh, I think pretty strongly arguably, according to the, their credentials academically. So, uh, you know, I think that you, one, one example is that when California uh, banned affirmative action in the state a number of, a couple of decades ago, uh, the percentage of Asians shot up at some schools uh, north of 50% uh, in terms of the population, even though Asians represented a smaller uh, percentage of the population. But when you looked at certain academic credentials, test scores, grades, again, the rate in the terms of the number of applications, uh, it was a much, that was a much more fair representation when you considered uh, uh, all of the criteria that go into the admissions. So I think that's one of the confusing things. People think, oh, there's a ton of Asians at colleges. Uh, why are they upset? And the answer is when you tease out the numbers, they did a number of uh, studies with respect to SAT scores uh, which, by the way, are now being phased out by a lot of colleges. I'll get to that at another time, perhaps. But, you know, the SAT scores, uh, being Asian, would you, you would have to get a certain level SAT score to obtain admi admission as an average Asian person. And that would be a number that was like 30 or 40 points higher than the average white applicant, and then uh, a little bit less than 200 points higher than the average Latino applicant and over 200 points higher than the average black applicant. So when you compare the numbers of situations like that, and even if you grant that it's not all about your SAT scores, that type of data that has been available for some time in various contexts really gave a clear indication that, hey, there are not, there are some uneven, unequal weights and measures being applied here to use a biblical term from the Proverbs. Yeah, definitely. I actually read an article and I'm not sure which school it was. I thought it was Harvard, but it might must have been a different school where it was like upwards of 100 points higher for some for Asian students as opposed to like a black student or a white student. Yeah. And, and so it, definitely. Yep. 
So that would be an example of the situation that uh, a lot of these applicants, uh, you know, were trying to combat. So I, I guess I'm sort of naive here. I, my, my kids weren't, weren't applying to Ivy League schools. Uh, isn't there just some kind of across the board rubric where all the students are evaluated the same or are you are is part of this case that you're saying that there's there's different evaluations based on race this is a little confusing to me yeah and you know i understand your confusion because it's a very arcane and at times very non-transparent process uh and and really that's the danger i, I would say that I'm a big believer in transparency, right? And I think that you look at uh, John 3, 19 through 21 would say, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And one of the factors is that Harvard fought tooth and nail to fight discovery. Um, it's like, oh, this is our trade secret. This is our secret sauce, how we admit people. And ultimately they were able to keep some of their uh, processes still secret, but a lot of it did come to light through discovery. And a lot of this became clear, including that 2013 internal report that I had mentioned that Harvard had uh, investigated and had shown unfairness to Asians. So the reason, you know, if you look throughout the history of law, a lot of times the more the decision maker has absolute discretion and subjective discretion to make a decision, the greater the danger is that that decision is going to be improper in some way. It's going to be influenced potentially by nepotism or by financial corruption or by, you know, in these cases, uh, race, uh, which according to the line of cases in the Supreme Court, uh, you know, there's only certain very limited ways you were able to consider race in the past and, and even now going forward. So when Harvard is having this very secret process and, and, you know, throughout this process, it just blows me away. There was this element called the personal rating. And on that element, Asian, Asian applicants were like way lower rated than any white Latino or black applicant on the personal rating. And these are ratings that would attempt to assess matters of character, matters of, oh, is this person an effective leader? Is this person, uh, you know, uh, just like uh, an attractional person to be around others? And even though the vast majority of cases, the admissions officer had never even met the vast majority of the applicants, the Asian personal ratings were like way lower. Uh, just on very often arbitrary seeming criteria. So whenever you add that subjective element, they did the same thing Harvard did, by the way, in the 20s and 30s and, and beyond, really, uh, with Jewish applicants. And there was at the time, there was this notion of the Jewish quota where you could never have more than a certain percent of Jewish uh, students at Harvard. And a lot of times it was, again, this type of notion of character, supposed character, where a lot of these Jewish applicants were discriminated against. And again, it's this subjective assessment that can often be a cloak for improper forms of judgment. It seems like Harvard might need to have some conversations <laughs> on race, justice, and unity. Because, <laughs> um, you know, Harvard representatives... Call us. Yeah. We'll help you. Yeah. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem, you know, equitable. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, yeah, it's, it's really, it does grieve me, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's I mean, it's it's it is such it attests to the issue of sin in our world 
You know, when when we participate according to standards that are not God's righteous judgment or justice standards, this is where we end up in a bunch of partiality. So it sounds like there were some objective criteria for admissions, but then there was this whole kind of subjective personal character pool of criteria and Asians were consistently when they did the audits were rating lower. And so is, is that kind of what led to the lawsuit of, and I'm wondering if this is just kind of kitchen conversation in Asian culture of like, well, we all kind of know that there's discrimination of Asians in college applications, but we can't prove it. And so this was the opportunity to prove it. Exactly. And I think it really, it it grieves me also because, you know, there's almost like a cottage industry right now among a lot of uh, admissions counselors uh, and private admissions counselors too, who uh, they they try to say to a lot of Asians, like, look, you need to de-emphasize your Asian-ness. And you need to try to distinguish yourself as not like all those other Asians in order to increase your chances of, uh, you know, getting admitted to a number of these colleges. And to me, that's just really, uh, that's really a, gr- a grievous impartiality. And, and look, James 2.9 would tell us, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, it, it, you know, as Monique said, this is clearly sinful behavior when you're, you're showing partiality and judgment like so the case starts making its way through the courts. Um, I guess what I'm wondering then is, do you have any thoughts about why the Supreme Court picked up this case? Because they don't hear every case. Like, For sure. Yeah. You know, why do you think that, that this case continued to move forward? Because you said they even lost a couple of times. Yeah. Well, it's in interesting because in a way, the fact that uh, – Students for Fair Admissions lost at the district court and circuit court levels. There was some discussion around uh, academia and some of the commentary that if Harvard had lost at either the district court level or the circuit court level, there was a chance that they might not even appeal to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court wouldn't be able to use the case as a vehicle to make a nationwide ruling on the topic of affirmative action. That was all speculation, but that was part of the commentary at the time. But it so happens that the district court judge, uh, both district court judges that heard the Harvard case and the UNC case, as well as the circuit court case that heard the uh, Harvard case, they all ruled against student for fair admission. So Blum and SFFA appealed to the Supreme Court. And you're right. I mean, it's a very rare 1% or less number of cases that would get heard by the Supreme Court. But I do think that uh, it is about time. Uh, it was about the right time because one of the cases that was cited had been decided about 20 years ago. It was a seminal case in uh, Grutter versus Bollinger is the name of it. And that case basically said 20 years ago, well, you know, hopefully all of these racial preferences shouldn't even be needed in 25 years. So uh, it, it, it was a major case. Uh, I do think that just the Supreme Court, how they decide to take a case on will vary and, and who it really resonates with. But I do think that the facts of the case that came out during discovery really showed such a clear injustice against Asians that, you know, for a number of reasons, it would be a pretty compelling case to take up. But that's, again, I I, I haven't seen any overt 
Supreme Court justices uh, sharing their reasoning as to why they took the case yet. That may come in the future. But uh, so it's, again, just speculation. Interesting. Hmm. What do you think the lasting impact of this ruling is going to be, especially like in, in the realm of education? Well, I think the Supreme Court has clearly laid down a standard now that, look, uh, strict scrutiny, which is how the Supreme Court views racial preferences or racial discrimination of any time, strict scrutiny requires that, uh, you know, that this would be a very uh, narrowly tailored solution. Uh, any, anyone that would, that there needs to be compelling government interest or com compelling institutional interest, depending on the situation, uh, to have these preferences. And then separately that those uh methods that they use to curtail or to address the racial issue has to be very narrow, narrowly tailored. That's the strict scrutiny standard. And uh, the, the Supreme Court made it very clear that affirmative action doesn't get a pass from that. And ultimately, that's the standard, uh, various types of standard uh, that was used in the current case that they decided on. And, you know, the reasoning was very powerful because the Supreme Court, the, the majority decision the consensus opinion actually goes through the history of the various affirmative action cases in education and even goes back further than that to Brown versus Board of Education and uh, not again before affirmative action, just desegregation and uh, other cases even further back like Yikwo versus Hopkins and, uh, you know, Plessy versus Ferguson uh, as well uh, cited. Uh, so there's really a strong, strong jurisprudence uh, that really is brought forth in this opinion that describes why the Supreme Court, uh, the majority came to the decision that it did. Well, yeah, tell us more about that. Like, what did they decide? And tell us about some of the case law background that they built upon mm. in order for this case. Like, you know, tell us, yeah, let's dig into those, some of those details a little bit. So the, the Supreme Court ultimately decided after very quickly disposing of uh, a procedural concern regarding the standing of the organization SFFA, uh, they, they quickly disposed of that procedural argument that Harvard and UNC had made and then moved on to basically decide that the equal protection clause is of, of the Constitution uh, prevents this type of discrimination against Asians. And, uh, and indeed, I think that um, uh, they, they really did a very thorough analysis, in my opinion, and uh, they talked about I, th this notion of strict, strict scrutiny that I had mentioned before, they said that the, the the criteria that Harvard and UNC were claiming was compelling was just too nebulous, too too vague, because what they said, Harvard and UNC said that they had interests in uh, the, the type of race preferences that they've been using. Those interests include training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, promoting a robust marketplace of ideas, preparing engaged and productive citizens. And the Supreme Court, Court held according, and this is all from the summary, uh, while these are commendable goals, they are not sufficiently coherent for purposes of strict scrutiny. And, and one reason for that, it wasn't measurable. It, it wasn't really a way in which they could ever say, oh, well, we've, we've accomplished that. And so that was one of the criteria that the Supreme Court used in order to de determine that. And there was also an importance that the Supreme Court highlighted, again, quoting from the, uh, the summary. Second, respondents' admissions programs fail to articulate a meaningful connection between the means they employ and the goals they pursue. So, you know, again, just there is this notion that 
just because you're going to have X percent of each ethnicity, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to achieve the goals that you're claiming to pursue. Even And again, the Supreme Court said all of these goals are good goals, but they are not compelling interests. that uh, They don't rise to that level, and again, partly because it's a nebulous type of determination. Let me, let me see if I'm following what you're saying there, that the Supreme Court wasn't against the idea of wanting good leadership or a diversity of opinions in in the school and that sort of thing. They're just saying that has nothing to do with race. And when you're trying to create admissions based on percentages of racial groups, that doesn't get you to the goals that you're saying you want to achieve. There's a disconnect between those two projects. Is that, am I on the right track there? That's right, that it doesn't articulate a meaningful connection. And and this actually gets into another uh, concern that the court had, which is to say that, you know, by by assuming these racial preferences that you're using will, will engender these results, you're engaging in a form of stereotyping, which is also forbidden under past court law. So that's that's another reason, you know, you can't engage in stereotyping, full stop. You can't engage in being using race as a negative. And, and that's where Asians were in terms of the discussion that the court gets into, is that clearly there was a negative factor being assessed against Asians. And, you know, the, the court properly recognized that college admission, again, quoting from the summary, college admissions are zero sum and a benefit provided to some applicants, but not to others, necessarily advantages the former at the expense of the latter. And that's a form of discrimination against Asians that was not permissible under law. And, so and, in in, think, in thinking about that, I guess it encourages me that in the age in which we live of so much I would say being shaped by the critical social theories and we're almost recruiting now for racial preferences or preferences for certain minority groups. It heartens me a little bit to hear the Supreme Court says, you know, these these things, the, the, the outcomes have to be meaningfully connected to how we're recruiting. It's not just based on race. Exactly. Yeah. And and I would say, you know, the the point you raise is interesting because when you're talking about the court kind of discussing these factors, I I think that there's, you know, the, the, the whole notion that just because you're Asian, you must be this stereotypically uh, great student and no other kind of factors that that didn't even hold true. Like I said, with respect to the analysis of the applicant pool, you know, the Asians ranked highest not just in academics as as an ethnic group, but they also ranked highest in extracurricular activities. And there were a number of other situations. Whenever you had an Asian in front of an actual interviewer, alumni interviewer, they tended to score right at the top of those of those factors. And when given rankings by the alumni interviewers who had met the candidates, they had gotten these really high marks compared to the admissions uh, administrators who gave them low marks despite never having met them. So I don't know if that answers your question. But Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's time to prepare. 
Let's get ready for the journey ahead. Life doesn't give us a redo. We don't get to run it back. Along the way, we will face obstacles and challenges, but we are carrying light into the dark places. Our paths and our destinations are different, but our beginning is the same. We must prepare. This is why Impact 360 Institute exists. Get ready to grow, to stand firm, to be who God created you to be, to lead with courage, truth, and love. This experience will transform your life. Be challenged to grow your faith. Learn how to think, not what to think. Build community with those seeking to live like Jesus. Establish spiritual rhythms, discover how to be, and make disciples. And put your faith into action. As you prepare for the journey ahead, deepen your understanding of what God has revealed about reality and why Christianity is true. Discover your identity in Christ and your God-given calling and authentic community. Cultivate a servant's heart and live a life of spirit-empowered kingdom influence. I have more questions, but go ahead. No, I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna ask, how do you think schools are gonna or do you even think schools will try to get around this ruling? I feel like sinners are gonna sin. And so wherever there might be a loophole, a small little, you know, gaping, you know, not gaping hole, but like a small little hole where somebody can, you know, wiggle their way through. I feel like people would try. Do you think that this ruling is tight enough where it's it's unable to be altered or for people to, you know, kind of jimmy rig their way around? So they are clearly going to try to get around the ruling, in my opinion. And you're already seeing it happen in the lead up to this opinion over the last couple of few years. And initially it was uh, kind of COVID was used as the excuse, but more and more universities are eliminating or making optional the use of things like the SAT. And the, you know the SAT is a lot of these standardized tests. And I, I also think of the SHSAT, I don't know exactly what that stands for, but that's a test in New York City that they use to get uh, to for admission into the uh, magnet schools of New York. And, you know, tests like these have historically, and it's even internationally across different countries, these types of tests have been a, a way for especially the underprivileged or uh, less, less privileged, uh, the poorer members of society to have a leg up in a way that they can kind of uh, be upwardly mobile. And yet by eliminating the more objective, I would I would say more objective criteria, although some would disagree with that. But by eliminating things like test scores, what they're doing is they're increasing the subjectivity, which we had talked about earlier, right? That the administrators can kind of make their own subjective decision within this uh, kind of unknown mystery stew of factors. And the concern- the mystery <laughs> stew, I like that. Yes. <laughs> and the concern is that one example is that the Supreme Court talked about uh, like, oh, we're not saying that a person can't mention his or her ethnicity or race in their college application essay, for example. And we, we're not saying that that's not going to be formative upon a person. Uh, and one of the one of the concerns is that people are going to use these subjective criteria and even the you know mentioning or or playing up of certain issues relating to ethnicity in their essay to such an extent that it's going to 
uh, kind of result in a similar uh, end result or end percentages, even if the way that they take to get there uh, is arguably different. But I was encouraged by, this is a quote from the main decision, um, but despite the dissent's assertion to the contrary, universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. And that, that is a pretty clear signal that the court's not going to look favorably upon kind of a sneaky end run to try to get to the same result using a different method. Now, with that said, unfortunately, you know, it takes years for these cases to make their way through the system. Uh, you know, there's always some level of gray, especially the more subjective you make your decision criteria. And so my concern is that this is going to kind of end up in the courts again, because there is a determination. And, you know, actually, this goes back to another comment, like the, 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 the liberal establishment, the leftist establishment, you know, has this mantra about the critical importance of, of affirmative action, even though, quite frankly, there are numerous other ways to get to uh, an ethnically diverse population, not just favoring their race. But I'll get to that uh, in a moment, perhaps. But even though that's such a mantra of most of the liberal and left establishment, if you take surveys of the general population of the U.S., I, I believe I've seen a number of surveys and polls that have seen a majority of people approving of the Supreme Court's decision to eliminate affirmative action in higher education. And actually, I think that's also, I want to highlight a disconnect between a lot of the Asian academics and interest organizations leadership, which holds typically to that liberal or leftist kind of mentality, and the general membership uh, or the general population of Asians. And, you know, there is a disconnect there, I would say, between, uh, because Asians are increasingly uh, as, a, as a population in the U.S. Uh, opposed to these types of racial preferences in education. And yet there seems to be, I, I think it was over 90% of the uh, briefs from Asian organizations were written in favor and in support of Harvard. So there's a clear disconnect there between the leadership of some of these organizations and the actual uh, population. And, you know, one, one site that uh, a lot of the Asian uh, leaders of these organizations like to say is they say, oh, oh, Asians as a group, uh, they support affirmative action. Well, I actually am a big fan and, and uh, one of my hobbies is polls and studies and surveys. And it's all about the call of the question, right, in terms of a lot of these polls and surveys. And a lot of Asians might theoretically, oh, yeah, affirmative action, that sounds nice. And a lot of Asians may even uh, less now, I think, but I think there had been a long period of time where Asians thought that affirmative action benefited them as well in some ways in terms of like their admissions percentages. I do think that diversity is a help generally to everybody that is involved and a diverse set of viewpoints and a diverse set of backgrounds. That's a wonderful thing. But when you look at these surveys, these surveys aren't going to plainly say things like, do you support an admissions scheme where Asians have to score you know, 100, 200 points higher than people of other ethnicities in order to be admitted? And I think if you give that pop survey to the Asian population, you get an extremely different survey result. I think um, the idea of, you know, who is being helped by affirmative action and these, are there some Asians who think that they are being helped by affirmative action is a... a good conversation to have. It's not, you know, this conversation, but I'm not even sure how many people are aware of the groups that are helped by affirmative action and to what degree, 
you know, and so looking at, you know, are whites helped by affirmative action? Well, they are. But to what degree? And where do we see this? Even with Harvard's, um, I read a, a report, and I, gosh, it was probably from a couple of years ago now, but where there was um, even a, a po- like postponing of white women let in because there wasn't a- enough white men being let in. And, you know, so there's affirmative action, ha- I think is seen as being one thing, but actually it helps people that, I would say many people would say, well, affirmative action isn't meant to help these people. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because the way it worked out quite a bit at Harvard, and again, this is a generalization, but you know, you you look at Harvard, and I I brought this point out in my article, a number of the people being helped in terms of the notion of affirmative action at Harvard were actually immigrants or children of immigrants in terms of some of the uh, black and Latino applicants. Uh, and, and if you're a recent immigrant to the United States, uh, arguably some of the worst aspects of historical discrimination against black people uh, and Latino and Asian people in this country may not apply as much to an immigrant. And certainly I'm not saying an Im- immigrants don't, they, they certainly suffer discrimination in certain contexts today as well. But you know, if you look at that immigrant population, there is not necessarily that direct nexus to some of the older, more historical uh, events of discrimination. And in contrast, a lot of the Asian applicants that were being discriminated against were also immigrants or children of immigrants who had a very limited nexus and and I would say next to no responsibility for some of the more distant historical past events uh, relating to horrible discrimination such as slavery. And uh, that 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 it's a jarring consideration because when you ask that question about who does affirmative action help, I think one of the most crazy things about this whole process is there are there are other ways. And the the SFFA plaintiffs, they demonstrated this via expert testimony that there are other ways that Harvard or UNC could get to a ethnically diverse population that don't just say it's because of your race or we're going to give you this plus factor overtly because of your race. They could do things like increase socioeconomic preferences. They could increase financial aid. They could reduce the or eliminate the importance of legacy and donor and faculty and children of faculty preferences. This is a huge one. They could do something like increasing geographic diversity. Right now, people from the South are underrepresented at uh, Harvard and people from poorer areas are underrepresented. So if you even did things like try to do some geographic targeting based on your zip code plus four zip codes, uh, the studies have shown that you could really make sure that uh, ethnic diversity is maintained in some fashion in a much more fair and even-handed way. You could increase targeted recruitment. You can increase community college transfers. You could eliminate early action. All of these factors are things that could really result in a diverse group of people. And again, I, I think that I live in Southern California. I love diversity. I've been so benefited by being uh, in, in close proximity to and close friendship with people of all different backgrounds. But you can do it in these other ways. And I would say biblically, it is far more justifiable biblically to be benefiting people who are from a poorer or less privileged background. I think you see all kinds of scriptures about uh, a notion of of mercy and helps to people that are struggling. And so in my mind, that would be a far more biblically acceptable way of, within, within limits, that would be a far more biblically accepted way of doing it. I 
I guess a couple things. One is I have concerns about the long-term impact of some of what could be the outcome of this decision in the sense that if colleges do away with SATs and they do away with more, because we've done some conversations of some school districts now trying to get even rid of grading systems, getting rid of GPAs in, in the name of education equity. Um, if those things go away, I'm left wondering what will a college education actually end up being? Exactly. Because, because if we're eliminating, I mean, call me old fashioned, uh, but the idea of an education was the best and the brightest that not everybody goes to college and that there, there were objective standards of what was required to get in. Well, if we start eliminating those to kind of be able to still stay in the land of all the subjective stew of how we're letting people into college, then I don't really know what college becomes anymore. I don't know. This That's a little concerning to me. It, it's extremely concerning. And you see it in a lot of the direction of higher education, unfortunately. You see it. There are still efforts in New York to eliminate or really radically revamp uh, the application process to the New York magnet schools. I actually haven't kept as current on that. Uh, you know, maybe they've already changed it again. Uh, you know, I know that Lowell High School in San Francisco had been, again, a very elite kind of high school. But uh, I know that the San Francisco School Board really totally threw out their admissions process. And, you know, when you have this level of subjectivity, it really does beg the question as to who's getting admitted and why and what kind of education are they receiving. And I, I think that I go back to the concept of transparency, right? And so many times, if you have criteria that are plainly laid out, I think that is an increase in fairness. I think it's it's really beneficial to the process. But the problem is, I think a lot of these college uh, administrators know that if they publish their criteria and lay out the kind of process, that the people that are most motivated to get in are going to be looking for that, and they're going to be trying to to do good, to do well in, in those areas. And you know, I really. It, 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 it just grieves me because, again, I think that the answer is going to be increasing subjectivity, incre increasing secrecy, and increasing discretion of the ultimate authorities in the admissions process, these you know, these admissions administrators. I think um, what we're talking about, like just this little segment here in like grading and you know, only the top get into college and things like that, which is an older way of thinking about things, goes down a lot to the conversation of meritocracy and meritocracy yeah. being white and, yeah. you know, this idea of equity in exchange for meritocracy. And Well, since know, I'm the white person in the room, I guess it fits that I'm talking about the meritocracy. Well, I didn't want to be the one to just I'm, bluntly say I'm it, confused. but I mean, since you're putting it out here. you said. In these streets, you are the one. No, but I mean, what a, what a standard that goes against our biblical precedent and our biblical principles. Mm. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, and, and, and not... Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Well, Go ahead. because what I'm seeing in my feeds, I'm seeing kind of two things. I'm seeing some people that are minorities that are like, finally, get rid of the affirmative action. I can make my own way. 
I want to, I want to earn my way in. I want to be respected, but that might not actually end up happening if, if the schools just sort of shift to more subjective recruiting practices. There, and, you know, and the other, the other extreme I'm seeing is I'm a minority and I'm never going to be able to get a job because of the Supreme Court and what happened last week. Those are the two kind yeah. of I mean, extremes. If we look at studies that have been done around affirmative action and around minorities, especially in regard, especially blacks in regards to affirmative action, one of the things that comes out is that oftentimes when minorities are put in places of like higher education and they're put there by affirmative action, mm-hmm. if they if they don't have the qualified skills and level of education to be able to stay there, they end up dropping out. It's much better to have someone go via the route of meritocracy where they get into the school that fits their learning style, that fits their education needs, that that fits that. It's better for me to go to a community college and then transfer over to Cal State Northridge than it would be for me to go directly to Harvard because I'm Black and my, you know, admissions essay all said, well, hi, my name is Monique. I'm Black Dusan. <laughs> I was born in February and I'm Black. You know what I mean? Like basing everything on my skin color doesn't help when I have to sit down and really write a 5,000 word essay. But if I start out at the place that is best for me, which may be a community, no shame. I started out at a community college before right. I went to Biola. Yeah. So, you know, having that community college background teaches you some fundamental things that you need to be able to go yeah. into English 101 or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think part of the what you're what you're hitting on is interesting because I think part of this plays into the Harvard mystique itself, right? Because some of these uh, solutions like, reducing legacy donor and faculty preferences, uh, you know, admission preferences, benefiting the children of faculty, children of donors and and legacy admissions, things like increasing community college transfers, that kind of cuts against the kind of elite reputation that Harvard has cultivated very vigorously over the centuries. And, you know, things like that, even I think it would be a wonderful thing if Harvard really did and made a much greater effort than they currently do to target uh, underprivileged people. And and I think, again, when you target people who have not had as easy of a time of it, you, you will increase your diversity just by virtue of the fact that if you look demographically at the populations right now, unfortunately, sadly, and, and again, for a variety of factors, including in some cases, historical discrimination, there there is a larger percentage of the underprivileged and the poor in our country who happen to be black or Latino or an Asian in certain cases. And so when you target the people who need that opportunity more that would be benefited by a leg up or a hand up uh, in this situation, you will be increasing your ethnic diversity as well. But again, I think biblically, you would be doing it in a much more accepted way. And frankly, even if you poll the United uh, States public as as a whole, I think support for socioeconomic type of benefits with respect to helping the poor and underprivileged is much more greatly supported by the general American population uh, than certainly racial preferences are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in your opinion, after reading the Supreme Court decision, has affirmative action ended or is it just in education? Well, this was a decision targeted toward uh, college admissions. Uh, I think even they even made an exception 
in uh, this case for some of the military, uh, U.S. military academies. But uh, I do think that the principles underlying this decision uh, will hold true in other cases that may come before the court. Now, it's interesting, the notion of legacy donor faculty admissions uh, is now coming under fire by the Biden administration in the, on the heels of this uh, Students for Fair Admissions case in the Supreme Court. And they're now claiming that legacy donor faculty preferences are also discriminatory. And so I think they're trying to bring that case forward. And frankly, I would say more power to you. You know, I, I don't have any, I'm no, I don't have any love for that type of preference. And if you, there's a quite a bit of the percentage of the overall student body that's set aside for these categories. And if you eliminated that, I think it is true that you would see quite a bit more general diversity than the kind of elite upper crust uh, applicants that uh, are in those categories. Christy, do you have any other questions? Um, yeah. Okay, so, go ahead. <laughs> why do you think Christians should care about this case and the the conversation around affirmative action overall? Well, I think Christian, you know, there's a really interesting conversation happening in various sectors of, of the Christian world, I would say. And that that is what is a Christian's role in uh, the public or public policy or, or activism or even advocating for justice, quote unquote. And I, I know that the two of you have done a lot of work on the social justice movement, so-called, uh, within the Christian community. And I do think that it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, I, I had seen uh, an Asian pastor that was lamenting the SFFA decision at the Supreme Court. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, boy, this is actually a affirmation of biblical justice. And, you know, Levit Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness, righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And th these are the principles that would, I think, lead to greater fairness and more biblical justice in this situation. And again, there are other ways, aside from this kind of liberal Harvard admissions administrator method, to reach a relatively diverse student body. And I'm not, you know, again, as someone who has really loved the concept of diversity and diverse viewpoints and diverse backgrounds throughout his life, I think that uh, some of those methods could be could be quite effective and quite positive, depending on how it's implemented. Unfortunately, it just seems like they're retrenching. They're, they're just going to dig in and uh, just really figure out how they can get around it is, is my initial impression. Uh, so good. Um, one of the things that immediately makes me think about is that injustice is injustice. And so when... Uh, and I'll just take my, my personal social media feed and things like that. When people are advocating and saying now black people won't be able to X, won't be able to get in school, won't be able to get jobs, won't be able like whatever their belief is um, that that this ruling, how, how it will impact them. It's almost as if the conversation is like, well, we're not talking like Asian. We're not talking about Asians. So whatever happens to Asians is that's what happens to Asians. But don't mess up what's good for me without understanding that injustice is injustice is injustice. And so we can't support injustice on any level. So I can't, while I, I while something might be working for me, if it's, if that thing that's working for me is a direct injustice to somebody else, 
that thing isn't really working for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think about some of these examples. If I see someone of a different ethnicity that's clearly being discriminated against or treated badly in a public place, you know, I, you know, like the good, if you consider the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, when someone crosses your path and they're in need, we should speak up, right? We, we should do something. We should, we should help that person. And, you know, I think that that is an important factor when you consider to your point, Monique, that's, ex- that's exactly right. It shouldn't matter. It, it shouldn't only be one subset of people. It should be all peoples that are treated with any type of injustice. And that was the point that I made in my article, actually, is just like there was all this talk of social justice, but we, we have to consider what is social justice? And again, my preferred term is biblical justice in this situation. And I cited a number of verses and biblical concepts that I believe it's clear that uh, this Harvard case should, you know, even five years ago, I said, I, I hope that this Harvard case goes down. And, and that the Harvard admissions process uh, is overturned by the Supreme Court. And I was really rejoicing in that sense when that actually happened. Yeah, we, we prefer the word biblical justice, yeah. too. We, we generally avoid social justice. I know that's like the hip term, but it's just it's uh, a well, little a confusing. Lot of people, a lot yeah. of times people think social it, it agrees me when Christians just assume that social justice means whatever aspects of the left and the liberal establishment are telling you is social justice rather than comparing everything like Bereans to the word of God mm-hmm. to see what is actual justice. Yes, yes. go ahead and preach. It's okay. We are here for it. Yes. <laughs> well, this has been so helpful, Han. Thank you so much for sitting down with us and explaining all of these things to us. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you both. And uh, yeah, anytime. It's really my pleasure. Oh, well, thank you so much. God bless. Wow. That was, I learned a lot. Super helpful and informative and just, yeah, really breaking down, um, you know, what took place and, you know, how we move forward or how Christians at least should move forward with impartiality. I think the big takeaway for me that I, I mean, it's so obvious, but I love how he, he said, you know, there's other ways to get to diversity. We mm-hmm. get so fixated on the ethnic issue. Yes. And, you know, the much more biblical path is to think about the poor mm-hmm. or the people that maybe college would be out of reach for them. And they come in all colors. Like they, they, come they don't in just all have colors. to be black and brown. Exactly. You know what I mean? We're always talking about desegregating poverty. Yeah. Like, let's have the poverty conversation not just focusing on the ethnic the ethnic issues mm-hmm. but for me I was I mean even his thing about representation in the south like going by zip codes mm-hmm. and I thought wow I, I've never really thought about it quite like that but that's that's so interesting and it also made me think about conversations you and I have had about you know blind applicant review when it comes to job placements you know maybe there's something to reflect on there, you know, when it comes to college admissions, you know, some things for Christian colleges to think about, like, hey, let's be distinctly Christian 
in mm-hmm. how we're admitting people, what our process is, make sure that your objectives of the type of student you want mm-hmm. are actually connected to your admissions standards. Yeah. And let's have those standards be based on the scripture. Yeah. <laughs> and right. actually be able to be worked out scripturally. You know, the culture is going to cults. Yeah. And so there, I expect them to be crazy. I don't expect, you know, yeah. secular schools to abide by all of the biblical standards, but we are a called out people and we should be participating in a very specific way yeah. with, you know, people, one people in general, but definitely those who name the name of Christ. Yeah. It really makes me think more deeply about Christian college admission standards. Mm-hmm. Like what are we doing to stand differently from the world? What is our process? And are the types of students that we're trying to recruit, whether they're good leaders or having diverse perspectives, you know, obviously within the realm of biblical orthodoxy, but coming from a variety of backgrounds and and making room and a, a pathway for people that otherwise wouldn't be able to get to the college. Mm-hmm. Do those things match what we're doing in our process? Yeah. In admissions. Yeah. That that was really good. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I think for Christians, too, it's like we we talk a lot about this leadership skill thing. And yeah. but there are some students who will never be leaders. I'm sorry. <laughs> like this, this kid, little Tony, Tony's never going to be a leader. But Tony has a servant's heart. Yeah. Tony is humble. Tony will clean the toilet like Tony, Tony. We we only we can we need to send Tony through like what I don't know what that looks like but when we when we talk about all of these qualifications and these mm-hmm. like personality traits and things like that sometimes that can get conflated in, into only this bucket are the desirable candidates mm. and then this bucket over here well they're not as desirable but they this bucket over here really does have some skills that we might not be looking at but that are biblical yes that's so good well we hope you enjoyed the conversation with our brother han cho it was very helpful be sure to share the show out on your social media feed help to combat some of the misinformation out there some of the fear out there and um we hope that you'll share this maybe with people that you know that work in Christian higher ed uh, to give them some things to think about. Yes. And with that, have a happy weekend. Good night, everyone. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.